The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. You would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Our passage for this morning is Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15. We've been making our way through the, the book of Hebrews, and we are in a section just providentially during a time of year where we focus specifically on the incarnation of Christ, His first advent, His first coming. And we're continuing that by looking at verses 14 and 15 in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, let's now give our full attention to God the Holy Spirit speaking through His infallible Word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. And this concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. When we think of this time of year, Christmas time, the incarnation of our Lord, what is it that typically comes to your mind? Other, other than you know the Christmas tree and all the good food we're going to eat and you know, the need for the gym membership after, after this week. Other than that, what comes to your mind? Well, you may think of the nativity scene. I mean, nativity means birth, pertaining to the things surrounding a birth. And so you may think of a, a baby uh, sitting in a manger with Mary and Joseph and some of the animals around. Uh, or uh, you may think of uh, the angels. Uh, you may think of Luke 2 and the angels appearing to those shepherds. Uh, angels declaring the birth of Christ and what a sight that uh, may have been been. Whatever the case may be, I bet what's not on your list of things you think about for Christmas is Satan, is the devil. I can even think, perish such a thought, that even seems blasphemous during a season that's meant to be about our Lord. And yet when thinking about the incarnation, one of the places that our author goes to in Hebrews, is the devil. Of course, this is not to exalt him. This is not to in any way give him any sort of praise. But this is to talk about his defeat. Our Lord's incarnation brought about the defeat of the devil. Brought about the defeat of the devil who had the power of death from slavery to him. But this leads to some questions, doesn't it? In what way does Satan have the power of death? And how did he use it to keep us in lifelong slavery? And how exactly did Christ's death deliver us from that? Well, those questions is the outline for our sermon today. Three questions that highlight the wonder of the Incarnation in delivering us from our slavery to Satan's power. And the first is this. What way did Satan have power over or the power of death? Because we read in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, 
that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, just to touch on a few things real briefly first. Children here takes us back to the previous verse. We are called the children of Christ. Not in a literal sense, but in the sense that we're part of his family. We belong to him. We are those dearly beloved ones given to him before the foundation of the world. And because we have flesh and blood, which is just a figurative way of saying humanity, Christ likewise partook of the same. He assumed our humanity. He became a true man in every way except for sin. And this is because he came to save us and not angels, as verse 16 will go on to say. In order to represent us, he had to be one of us. In order to represent men, he needed to be a man. But here in verse 14, it says that Christ assumed our very humanity, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. He took on humanity in order to die. God cannot die. God cannot suffer because he has life in himself and his life is not dependent on anything outside of himself. Nothing can affect God. That would imply he's dependent somehow on something other than himself. But humanity can die. Humanity can suffer. And so the Son assumed humanity in order to suffer and die with the benefit of delivering us from the one who had the power of death, which is the devil. And that brings us to the question we want to answer under this point. In what way does the devil have power of death? Well, it's not the case that Satan is sovereign over the day of our death or the circumstances of our death, as if to say, serve me or I'll kill you. I'm the one keeping you alive, so do what I say or I'm going to end your life. Satan doesn't have that power because Scripture says otherwise. Uh, Psalm 90 verse 3 says, You, O God, return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. So the one who has sovereign over our death is the Lord. Besides, how does Christ dying for us suddenly make God sovereign again over our death? And even if it was the case that Satan was sovereign over our, the day of our death, why would that make us afraid of him? We, we're still going to die. He can't keep us alive forever. Even as Christians, we're still going to physically die. So what makes it no longer fearful by Christ dying for us is the question. And it's not the case that being under Satan means that we're going to die a torturous death, but, but being under Christ means we're going to die peacefully in our sleep. That has not been the case for Christian martyrs who have been fed to lions, uh, who have gone through torturous death, uh, even being crucified upside down, if uh, the tradition of what happened to the Apostle Peter is true. Nonetheless, Christians have faced a terrible death, even being burned alive. And if you could be guaranteed that you would die comfortably in bed, would that in itself deliver you from fear of death? Now, let's say the doctor... Um, and this, you know, this could happen to any one of us at any time. Go check up. The doctor says we found a very aggressive form of cancer. You have six weeks to live, but we're going to take away all your fears, and that we're going to give you some medicine that will make your death comfortable. 
Would you be, oh yeah, all my fears are gone now. Is that really what we're scared of? The relatively few moments before drawing our final breath. And I think that question reveals that there's really more that's meant by merely drawing our final breath in the physical act of death. Uh, what is meant by fear of death is not the physical act itself, but what comes after that? Later on, Hebrews will go on to say, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And all men know this. Romans 1.32 says that they do. They know that those who practice sin deserve to die, which means they know that death is a judgment for sin. They may try to fervently deny this. In fact, the reason they try to fervently deny it is because they don't want it to be true. They know that this is the case. They may try to persuade themselves otherwise, yet deep in their hearts they can't escape this truth. When one draws their final breath, they will step into eternity alone. And what helps us further see that this is to understand that there's more to death than just the physical is when you consider hell. When you think about hell, which is called the second death, which happens after death, at the full culmination of death, people are not annihilated or cease to exist. They're very much conscious. conscious. They're feeling torment forever and ever. And they're also excluded from the life of God and facing condemnation. This is what is, is meant by fear of death. It's condemnation, it's judgment that comes afterwards. It's the second death, as Scripture says. We just read in our Scripture reading. Now, the question is, how does Satan have power over this? Is he like a little red figure with horns, a pitchfork, kind of poking people while he's laughing, you know, causing, asking for the flames to be turned up uh, you know, higher? Well, Scripture, we never see Satan having power in hell or ruling in hell. That, that's just, it's a, I don't know how that started, but that's just not the case. First of all, Satan isn't this little red figurine form and pitchfork. Second, he does not have power over hell. Scripture makes clear who has power over hell. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Fear the one who can destroy the soul in hell. That's referring to God. Jesus in Revelation 14 is the one who is ruling over hell. The people are being tormented in, the, in his presence, the presence of the Lamb, including Satan. So he's not, he does not have that power. But here's what we do see in Scripture about the devil. We see Satan accusing the brethren. That's his very name. He's the accuser of the brethren. We see this in Zechariah chapter 3, where you have Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, and Satan is standing there to accuse him. Now, while he's the slanderer, while he's the father of lies, there's an indication in the passage that Satan is bringing actual and true accusations against Joshua, because Joshua in that vision is covered in dung. What a vision! Why is there a vision of him covered in dung? Well, how else would you describe somebody as filthy than being covered in excrement? Joshua is not clean and pure. 
He's as dirty as dirty can be. And Satan is standing there to accuse him. He's violated your law of God. Look at how filthy he is. But the question is, why does Satan do that? Is it because Satan is concerned for the glory of God and the law of God? Oh God, I'm so concerned for your glory. Your glory has been violated by this man. And your law calls that, he, that you punish him. You should do it. Because I'm concerned about your glory. Is that the case? No, he hates God. He's called the tempter. He tempts people away from God's law. He cares nothing about God's law. So why is he bringing accusations on that basis? Why is he calling for his condemnation? Why is he accusing on the basis of him being filthy, a true filth? Why is his very name the accuser of the brethren who does not cease to accuse them day and night? One of the top weapons he uses. Well, it's not only that he wants to see people condemned to death. It's also He also knows that's how he can control people. If I can accuse you, I can control you and get you to do what I want you to do. If he can convince you that you are actually condemned before God, that God doesn't love you, that you are not forgiven, then he can manipulate and control you. You, you see, fear of death does not come in merely because of the physical act of drawing one's breath. We're still going to physically die as Christians. It's still going to happen. Rather, fear of death comes when we believe we stand condemned. When there, That is when the fear of death comes in. Because what are Satan's accusations to us if there isn't any consequences for them? And the consequences for breaking God's law are as severe as it can be. It's eternal death. It's eternal judgment. It is literal hell. And we throw that word around so much. Oh man, it was like hell, you know, what I went through today. No, it wasn't. Hell is worse than you can ever, ever imagine. That's what happens when you stand condemned. And Satan actually uses that for his advantage in order to, as the reformers say, keep you under a slavish fear of hell. This fear of condemnation is how he controls us to get us to do what he wants and really to fall into one of two basic categories of sin. On the one hand, self-righteousness. On the other hand, self-indulgence. And this brings us to the second question that highlights the wonder of the Incarnation in delivering us from, the slave, from slavery to Satan's power. So we see how Satan has power. The first question, it's not in the circumstances of our death. It's not in the carrying out of our death. It's in that condemnation that keeps us in fear to control us. How does he then control us? Second question is, how does Satan use his fear to keep us in lifelong slavery? As we see in verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This fear leads to lifelong slavery. How? Well, 
Satan accusing us and convincing us that his accusations still stick before God, that we are guilty, we are condemned, we haven't measured up quite enough to be accepted by God, is his crafty way of getting us to not rely on Christ or his work, but to rely on our own. See, he convinces us that deliverance from condemnation cannot be found in Christ. He may say, Christ is a good start. I mean, of course Christ died for sinners. But not for you, he'll say. You know why? Because you're not good enough for him to die for you. think he would give you his gift of the gospel? (laughs) You're not worthy of it. You know what that implies? You still need to do something to earn it. Or, you'll do it on the other end. Yeah, Christ died for you, but you need to continue to show yourself worthy of it. Uh, You need to fight sin in order to stay out of hell, or you're not his. Uh, You need to maintain a level of holiness to hope to stand before God. What's that level of holiness? You'll never know. And that's why you're fearful. I don't have assurance if it's based on my holiness. How much holiness do I need? Because, let's face it, we're going to be sinners until the day we die. There's going to be a level of lack of holiness and righteousness in us until the day we die. Now, the true answer is, how much holiness do you need to see the Lord? Perfect holiness. You can't produce that. That's why... Christ, but he's trying to get you away from that. And he'll even appeal to a bunch of Bible verses that does talk about our need to put sin to death, which of course is true. We need to be put sin to death. But you'll say that you need to put sin to death for eternal life rather than from eternal life. Because if you ask the question, are you able to put any sin to death? Apart from Christ, apart from being united to Christ, what's the answer? The answer is no. Once you're united to Christ, will that ever, will that bond ever be broken? No. So our theology informs how we understand these verses, but what Satan is trying to get you to do is he's trying to get you enslaved to your own works. Are you doing enough? Are you holy enough? No, God, God hasn't accepted you yet because you're not good enough. Turn your eyes away from Christ and on your own righteousness for your deliverance. He, he suggests that Christ's death is only for those who are good enough by having pursued holiness well enough to be acceptable before God. You need to have a zeal for righteousness, but not according to knowledge, not knowing that Christ Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. He doesn't want you to think about that. He wants you to be focused on your own works your violation of law, that condemnation he brings in to keep you saying, well, I need to do better, I need to try harder, I, I hope I have enough, oh, oh, will I have enough? And living in that constant fear the whole time he's turned the gospel into work and he's turned your eyes away from Christ. And this is where legalism comes in. And I just saw how clearly in, in, in a video once, um, back in 2020 with the riots, just how easily people are controlled through fear of guilt 
and being judged. There's this video. I don't know who, who this was. I don't even know who this man was. I didn't see him, but he, he filmed this. And I think what he, he was doing an experiment, but he filmed this, this girl. He comes up to her and he goes, you need to bow down to me right now and ask for my forgiveness or you're a racist. It's really the worst thing you'd be called uh, in our society right now. And she immediately dropped to her knees and begged him. What kind of power? She's never met him. What kind of power is that? It's, it's a greater power than physical power. If you can control somebody who has a guilty conscience, you have a lot of power and control. And this is what we see in our society. This is what we see with Satan. This is how he works. You are going to stand condemned. You are going to stand excluded. Unless you prove yourself with your own righteousness. That is how he keeps people in lifelong slavery. And we see a picture of that in, even in our society. But this happens in religious circles as well. Now, 1 Timothy 4 says that doctrines of demons, which would be of Satan, is to avoid good things that God has given. Forbidding marriage and things like food and drink. Isn't it interesting that this is a doctrine of demon? I always found that interesting. Avoiding good things that God never condemned. I, I would think that it would be diving into evil things that would be a doctrine of demon, which of course that's included, but why is forbidding good things a doctrine of demon? Now, it's not that we have to partake in things like marriage or drinking wine. But why would we think that we are guilty for partaking in things that God never condemned? Why? Well, Titus 1 says that it comes out of a defiled conscience. The way he puts it there is, to the defiled, all things are defiled. It comes out of this guilty conscience, this accusing conscience. If I touch or taste even something that God never condemned, I will be guilty or it will lead me to sin. So I feel more clean, holy, pure when I avoid these things. I have a buffer of righteousness and my conscience feels better. I feel safer. I feel further away from condemnation if I have this extra buffer of righteousness. It helps me in my conscience. But there's usually much hypocrisy involved in this, as Jesus points out. Um, usually the weightier matters of the law are, uh, are forsaken. Now, now, I'm not talking about it, unless you participate in these things. You're, it's not, you don't have to participate in these things. But it's the one that says, because I don't participate in this, I'm more righteous and I teach others to do the same. So usually what you'll see is, don't drink wine and I'll teach others to do the same, but then... I'll have outbursts of anger at my spouse. Well, God never said, do not touch or handle wine. But he did say, you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You just violated God's law while you're teaching others to keep your own law. That's called hypocrisy. And there's an intense self-righteousness and blindness that comes from this. The person is attempting to establish his own righteousness so that he no longer feels guilty, can feel pretty confident that he is a good person, 
And that makes it impossible to admit sin. It actually leads to a lot of anger. But it makes it impossible to admit sin because that would imply that he's, fa- that he's failing in the very thing that he's putting his confidence in. That safety net that keeps him safe from condemnation. If you say there's a hole in it, then he feels exposed and alarmed and anger. And no, 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 I'm really, I really am righteous. And I need to defend that. Of course, we who do this would never articulate a doctrine of salvation by, by works, but we're inconsistently living at this point. This makes us very sensitive to any sort of judgment or condemnation of others. I have to silence all critics against me just as I'm trying to silence the critic within my own head, my conscience. But this flows out of not being convinced of God's acceptance of him in the gospel based on the righteousness and blood of Christ. And this is how Satan keeps us in this lifelong slavery, trying to establish our own righteousness, trying to keep up and measure up so that I don't stand condemned, but I never know if I have enough. And so I live in this fearful expectation of judgment. He turns our eyes away from Christ. He turns us to ourselves like Adam and Eve did when they looked immediately to the work of their own hands in making a covering for themselves when they knew their nakedness. And the other basic category that Satan uses to keep one in slavery from the fear of death or condemnation is self-indulgence. So we go from self-righteousness to self-indulgence. Eventually, the burden of trying to keep the law for life in order to avoid condemnation becomes too great. That's a a burden that we cannot bear. And so the sinner tries to find relief from the burden of the law. And when this is not found in the gospel, it's found in getting rid of the burden, which is the law. And so the sinner tries to find relief by setting aside the law. This is when the lusts of the flesh, the pleasures of this world, the idols that will provide comfort and acceptance become the relief. But then the guilt and shame from indulging in those things ends up being such a burden that you go back to the burden of the law. And that's when you say, I need to take my faith more seriously. I need to try harder. I need to do better. I need to surrender more. I need to be more resolved. And by golly, now I am. I'm going to do it. You're basically just going from one burden to the next. My shame is a burden. I go back to the law to try to keep it. That becomes a burden. I eventually go back to my sin and back and forth we go. Now, you may not be actively engaged in sinful lusts, but you're not likely engaged in committed and loving service to others. You've been so burdened by the law that you don't have motivation to keep it by loving others, which involves making commitments, making a commitment to the church, dealing with the vulnerability and messiness of loving others, and bearing their burdens. You're scared of that. Scared you might get condemned. You're scared that you might have to deal with the messiness of others. You may get hurt by others. All you feel is burden now 
and you are just wanting to get away from it all and be on a perpetual vacation. Now you may be saying, well, I don't live in constant fear of death, so how, how can this be? I don't feel you know, afraid of death. Maybe you driving here this morning, you weren't afraid of dying. I don't know, it depends on who you're driving with. But most of the time, we're not thinking of death, right? In fact, a lot of the activities we're engaged in is, is often um, a distraction from it, even though we don't realize it. I, I think our main comfort is that death is still a long ways off. At least we tell ourselves that any one of us can die tomorrow. We're not, we seriously don't know when the day of our death is. But I think our comfort is, well, that's still, that's still a ways off, especially if you're, you're relatively young. But when you have a near-death experience or when we receive a diagnosis that, like cancer or something like that, that is when it really hits us. And just think back a few years ago. Look at how scared people were. And I know, no, especially in our, you didn't feel the effects of that as much, but you had to at least have some compassion. You know, people were unreasonable. You had to have some compassion and realize that people are deathly afraid of death. You give a 1% chance of death and they'll do whatever it takes to avoid it. That's how scared people are of death. And outside of this, many are afraid of getting a disease. I think the, uh, the other way this fear of death shows up is in anxiety. Do uh, you know how many people have anxiety that's not tied to anything in particular? Uh, yes, why is that? Why is there this underlining expectation that something bad is going to happen that keeps one on edge? We also see this in, in things such as, just to give one example, it's the so-called uh, climate change. It's when data is collected and then interpreted and a forecast is made. Now, I don't know about you, you know, weather apps and things like that. Uh, forecasts are usually given percentage percentages, like there's a 40% chance of snow, there's a 50% chance, something that's going to happen two days from now. But with this, a forecast is made 100% chance that we're all doomed in 12 years. And obviously that's inconsistent, but, but you ask the question, why is there this looming sense that there's some doom coming to man? Now, they're correct. There is doom coming to man. Now, Genesis 8 says that the world's going to remain until that happens. So the doom is not the climate change, and the doom is Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Why are some of us afraid of being alone or being in the dark? How does the dark harm anybody? I don't know about you, but it's actually the light that keeps me awake. You know, trying to sleep, and you know, the neighbor has their little Christmas light thing on, and one year they they had it on our window, and so I saw all these stars in the ceiling and stuff like that, and I wanted to go over there and like, unplug his light. I prefer, does the dark really harm us? And does it pull out a knife and do, why is there that fear? Especially in kids. Why are we afraid of being alone? Well, you know how death is described, being hell. Outer darkness, cast out away from any 
community. That's the second death. What about being afraid of being judged by others, looking bad before others? Public shame. That's a huge fear. Do everything we can to prevent that from happening. That's part of that judgment. And that day of judgment, the books are open. Those who are outside of Christ, they're going to be exposed in all their sin. Public judgment. This is what is meant by fear of death. These things, not just the physical act of drawing your final breath, but everything in in condemnation, judgment. Now, and that's and, and this is how Satan keeps us in, in slavery. This self-righteousness to avoid it, and self-indulgent to comfort ourselves when the burden's too heavy. Now, as we consider these things, I, I think that many of us realize just how frail and weak our faith is. Many of us may be feeling guilty for professing faith in Christ and yet being afraid of that. We're being anxious. And you may have had a near-death experience and feel greatly ashamed of how fearful you were. And maybe still, when you think about your death, which you can't avoid, your heart kind of beats a little faster and you kind of feel those butterflies in your stomach. So how do we overcome this? Well, the good news is, your salvation is not dependent upon how much you conquer your fear of death. When you draw your final breath, you're still going to have fear. Your faith is not perfect. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the one in whom your faith is. And that's Christ. But how do we overcome this? Of course, this brings us to the third question that highlights the wonder of the Incarnation and delivering us from our slavery to Satan's power because it's not the case that once we believe, all our fears are gone. We need to keep going back and revisiting the Gospel. We need to grow in our depth of the Gospel. So how did Christ's death deliver us from such fear of slavery? And we see at the end of verse 14, through death, through His death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now this word in the ESV that's translated as destroy means to make inoperable or ineffective. It's to lose one's power or ability. It's, it's, it's like the, a person being removed from an office of authority. A person's still alive, he just has lost his authority. And Satan was not annihilated or put to death or ceased to exist. Uh, he still exists. He still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we are to... Be on the watch against our, our adversary. We are to take up the shield of faith as he shoots flaming arrows. So it's not that he was destroyed in the sense he was completely annihilated because he's still very active. Rather, he lost his power. And what is that main power he had? Well, that main power is keeping people under the fear of condemnation. That has been removed. And how has that been removed? The verse says it was through the death of Christ. How does Christ's death remove this power of the devil? Well, if the power is in keeping you under condemnation, it's knowing and believing that there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. In his son, what the law could not do. God sent his son to take on our own humanity, the incarnation. Why? To be under the law, to fulfill all righteousness for us, the righteousness that is needed to get to heaven, a perfect righteousness he has accomplished for us that we get credit for. And then he went to the cross and he bore that awful wrath, eternal hell, condemnation, everything that sinners are afraid of, He took in full so that there's none left for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a drop of it left. He took care of it all. As Colossians 2.14 says, that certificate of debt that was hostile against us, He has forever taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He goes on to immediately say there in Colossians, thus, triumphing over Satan. He has taken away his weapon of accusations, condemnation, keeping us in that slavish fear. No accusation of Satan can stick. As Romans 8 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect when the judge is the one who justifies us? He's the one who has taken that Debt in full. And furthermore, is at God's right hand interceding for us. We have all the righteousness we will ever need in Christ. It's a free gift apart from works. But we could still fall into thinking of, yes, the gospel is a free apart from works. But it's not for me. It's for others. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not good enough. Yes, I believe that Christ is the Son of God who did die on the cross, but I have a hard time believing that it was for me. Why me? Why would I receive this gift? This thinking is to turn the gospel into works, where you have to earn the gospel. That's how enslaved we, we are prone, we are to, to works. Re- remember, the gospel is always free. Of course we are never worthy of it. It's it's specifically good news for helpless sinners, for enemies, for the ungodly. It's good news for them because God doesn't require anything out of you. He says, I've done it all for you. Trust it. Take it. It's yours. No strings attached. It really is free. God is more eager to give it than we are to receive it. Psalm 86.5 says God is ready to forgive. Isaiah 30 says that God waits on high to show compassion. In Isaiah 55, God actually initiates and calls sinners to Himself. He says, come, 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 buy and eat. Well, I don't have anything without money and without price. It truly is free. I know Satan's going to come in there and say, did God really say that it's free? Did God actually say, I will remember your sins no more? Did God really say that it's apart from works? Yes, His word is clear. It is free. It is for you. Is for you who are helpless. 
guilty, vile, and helpless one. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Yes! Hallelujah! What a Savior. This, brothers and sisters, is how we are delivered from Satan's power in keeping us in slavery to the fear of death and condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As the song goes, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand. Till He returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, not of the devil, I stand. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are so grateful that You have delivered us from such a great fear. And we confess, we still have doubts and unbelief. Oh, help our unbelief, O oh God. Help our unbelief. Give us that confidence and assurance of the Gospel. That we are forgiven. Your Word has said it. Christ has made atonement. Christ is given to anyone who believes. We do believe. We can never be worthy. There, there's, there's nothing that we need to provide in order to make it ours. We just simply believe. We simply take it. It is a free gift. Help us to believe, O oh Lord, and find the comfort and peace of the Gospel, especially as that day of death draws near, that we will not stand condemned, but we will be welcomed, received by You who has taken away all our sin. He came incarnate, put on our very own flesh and blood to do so, to bring us to Yourself. Let us grow in our knowledge of You and knowing Your kind and loving heart. You are a God abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.